So if you have your Bible, would you open up to 1 Corinthians 11? Because that's where we're going to be. If you have your smart device with you, just go to the, the Bible app on that. Uh, if you've got the Version Bible app, you can go to the events page and you'll find all of our notes for this morning there. Uh, and so if this is your first week, uh, really glad that you're here. My name is Mike and I'm the lead pastor here at MCC. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we began talking about what it was, as Adam just mentioned, what it was that characterized the early church. Because, and this is why this is so huge, things were happening fast. I mean, they just happened lightning fast. The early church didn't even exist before the book of Acts. We see its formation. But in chapter 1, 120 people meet for prayer. The Holy Spirit shows up. And then things just start uh, happening. People start making decisions for Jesus about what their relationship with him was going to be like. Uh, Not by the hundreds. But by the thousands, as a matter of fact, if you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it says that there were 3,000 people who decided to make Jesus the Savior and Lord of their life, and they were baptized that day. Two chapters later, that number jumps to 5,000. That's how quickly things were happening uh, in the early church. Why was that? What was going on? What was it that the early church was doing that drew so many people to make this life-changing decision about who Jesus was going to be in their life? And then, not just themselves, but encouraging their family and their friends to come and make that decision about who Jesus was going to be as well. Listen, when we're talking about uh, the early church, we're talking about what, was, what characterized it. And so for the last couple of weeks, I said there's a number that ought to be important to us. That number, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, maybe you remember the number... 242, that's the number we're looking at. You know, this past week, a friend of mine uh, sent me a note. He said, hey, if you're still doing that number thing this weekend, you should put 2,102 up on the board. And I said, what is that number? He goes, that's the number of days since Michigan beat Ohio State. (laughs) Which really doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about today. But I think that's still a good number to know. (laughs) So, but Acts 2.42, that's where we are. This is on your notes. If you've got your handout for this morning, the notes are there. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So what the apostles are teaching, we looked at that the first week, right? And so we were trying to think through uh, what was going on. What were they saying? Uh, And so for those of you who do not know what the book of Acts is, if you've never read it, before. If you want to find it, it's the fifth book of the New Testament. The first four are the Gospels. They tell the story of Jesus's life. And then the book of Acts is what happened immediately after Jesus. As a matter of fact, at the very beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends back to heaven, and then the church begins. The book of Acts is, in, in essence, a history of the early church. And I think when we read it, we get a somewhat of a picture of what God intended the church to be, not without bumps and bruises, but we do get to see what he intended. So far, we've seen that the early church, as I mentioned before, was devoted to the apostles' teaching. So what, what were they teaching? We looked at what, maybe what that was. We saw how we do that and why that's important to us still today and how we, can, we uh, encourage each other to do that on a day-to-day basis. Last week, we looked at what was meant by fellowship which is the idea of community or joint participation, this idea of sharing in common with each other. Today, we're going to look at the breaking of bread. Sometimes today we use the words, the Lord's Supper. 
Sometimes today we use the word Eucharist or communion. But when you read the book of Acts, you see this mentioned as something the early church does. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it actually says on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Now, in context, it says that Paul uh, spoke to the people and he intended to leave the next day. So he kept on talking until when? (laughs) And if you keep reading verses eight and nine, you find out that Paul did indeed speak until midnight. So if you're if you're looking at this, there's a guy named Eutychus who had been working hard all day. He's sitting in the window. Paul goes on and on. Eutychus falls asleep falls out the window and dies. Let that be a lesson about sleeping during the sermon. It's also why we don't put windows in this room, all right? My Bible professor in college said the way to remember this guy's name is if you'd fallen out a window and died, you'd have cussed too. Uh, Again, it has nothing to do with what we're looking at this morning. But it is a funny story in the Bible, and, uh, and they bring it back to life so it all goes well. And, and if you don't, listen, but you don't get to see that sort of thing if you're not reading your Bible, right? So did you know when it comes to this idea of communion or this act of communion, really there's only about 33 verses in the whole New Testament that make reference to communion. It's about the length of one chapter, uh, of a typical chapter. And they're not even all in the same book. But these few verses tell us why it was important to the early church and give us an understanding of why our time of communion, even today, even today, is not only important to us, we're going to find out why it's important to God as well. So 1 Corinthians 11, uh, the verses this morning are part of a larger teaching. Uh, Paul has written this letter to the church in the city of Corinth because of several problems that they are having. They're having problems with uh, cliques vying for power. They have a problem because there's a guy who's living with his stepmother. They had believers who were suing each other. They had sex problems. They had marriage problems. Listen, you could take the whole church on the Dr. Phil show. Uh, It'd be a week-long episode. And I want to point this out because if it's not obvious to you yet, if you've never realized this from reading the Bible, the church in Corinth was not perfect. None of the churches you read about in the Bible are perfect. Our church is not perfect. Do you know why? Because we're made up of people. People just like you, people just like me, who struggle with sin, and sometimes we do the wrong thing, and, and it happens. Listen, one of the areas of problem concerned the Lord's Supper. So this church in the city of Corinth was like other churches in the first century. They would meet at night, and they had this tradition of gathering for a fellowship meal prior to uh, singing. And apparently their pitch-in dinners, listen, provided not only an occasion for fellowship, but those who were wealthier in the congregation were able to help take care of those who were less wealthy uh, or who were poor. This might have been the best meal that some slaves in the congregation or those who didn't have a job, this may have been the best meal that they would have eaten all week. And then after the meal, they would have a worship service and they would have a time of communion. But over the course of time, as often happens... What was intended to be a good thing deteriorated, 
and, and it became a problem. The rich got tired of waiting for the late-arriving slaves. They worked until sundown. The, the rich didn't want to wait that long, and so they just went ahead and ate early, which basically left scraps for those who were coming in late. Others got to bickering among themselves about who really ran the church, and they split up into these separate cliques which ate together. Uh, some drank so much wine at the fellowship meal that they were drunk, And when the worship time came and the time for communion came, they were so inebriated that the Lord's Supper was meaningless to them. So Paul wrote this to them, beginning in verse 17. Check this out. Your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe this. And then we jump to verse 20. I want you to see this. So then when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you will go ahead with your own private suppers. I just spoke about that. As a result, one person remains hungry and another person gets drunk. Do you, do you despise the, the, the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I pray? Listen, am I going to praise you for this? I'm not. Paul was obviously upset because these people were exploiting something that had great importance to God. And then he goes on to write about why Jesus instituted and how he instituted communion. And in the verses that we're about to look at, we're going to see why it's important for us today, why it's still important when God is being worshipped by us, why this is an important aspect of what we do. Look at verses 23 to 25. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And so it's in this that we see the first thing we're going to talk about, one reason uh, that we devote ourselves to the cross is because it's designed to be a time when I remember Jesus' death. For us here at MCC, every seven days we come back to this. And the reason we do that is because our memories fade with time. The further we get from an event, the less vivid the details of that event become. The older we get, the harder it is to remember. I'm going to bet you've been as frustrated as I have been, embarrassed at times because I have forgotten about an event or I've forgotten someone's name or called someone by the wrong name. Listen, we use the Google Calendar in the offices here, and each day at 5 a.m., I am emailed my schedule for the day. So just after I get in the office, it arrives. Uh, I don't know about you, 15 minutes before an event occurs, my phone dings. It lets me know that I'm supposed to be somewhere or about to do something in 15 minutes. This is why we have monuments to presidents. Guys, it's why some of you, when you lay your head on your pillow at night, it bumps into a rock inside your pillowcase. Your wife is just trying to remind you tomorrow's her birthday or your anniversary or something like that, right? Listen, computers don't have fading memories. Store a document in your computer, and in five years, you can pull that document back up, and it will be exactly the same as it was written. But that's not how God has created our memory. We have been created with planned obsolescence. It's probably a good thing that we don't remember everything in vivid detail. If you've ever been in an accident, 
and you never, if that memory never faded, you maybe would never get back into a car again. If you had taken a risk and you failed and that memory never faded, you may never take another risk uh, again. It would be terrible if someone that you loved, uh, when they died, if you never lost that memory, if it didn't fade a little bit, I mean, the grief would be unbearable to carry that the rest of your life. Verse 23 says this, on the night Jesus was betrayed. So Paul's explaining how all of this came about. And he says, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, and then he begins to explain this whole thing. But do you know what night Jesus, or that Paul is referring to? What night this occurred when, he, when Paul is pointing back? I mean, it's, it's written about in all four Gospels. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he is observing the Passover meal with his followers. Now, the Passover meal was a week-long celebration of an event from the Jewish history. Do you know what event that Jewish history, uh, all the way back in the Old Testament, do you know what event it was? All right, some of you, I'm guessing, know and aren't going to say, are we supposed to talk out loud now? Listen, this, so it's an event from the Jewish history all the way back in the Old Testament. God used Moses, remember, to deliver the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. So it was kind of like our July 4th for them. This meal was the highlight of that week. And actually, it was a retelling of that story. Even more accurately, it was a reliving of that story because as they took these emblems, as they took the pieces of the meal, each part of that meal reminded them of something that happened way back in the Old Testament. And they were to eat this meal, not just telling a story, it's like they were reliving the story as if they were actually there when it was happening. And then they reacted this event every year. And back in Exodus 12, so you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, second book, and it tells us why they were to reenact this. The Israelites were told, when you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? So when your kids say, why do we do this? This is what you're supposed to tell them. It's the Passover, right? And it's a sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt, spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. This meal that they, they, they celebrated every year was to be a physical reminder for all generations. But Jesus did something different. He took the customary elements of this Passover meal that they had celebrated every year for thousands of years and then expanded their meaning for communion what we call the Lord's Supper. We don't know everything he said to the disciples that night. It's not all recorded. I wonder if perhaps he referred to the roasted lamb that they were going to eat and then reminded them that he was the, the lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. We have no idea what all he said, but we do know he took the unleavened bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup of wine and he said, this is my blood, drink it to remember me. Still elements that we use today during our communion time. A small piece of bread that reminds us that the body of Jesus was broken on the cross for our sins. He was whipped. He was pierced. He was nailed to the cross on our behalf. A small cup of juice that reminds us of his blood that was poured out on the cross for our sins. Leslie Weatherhood tells of a little boy who was admitted to an orphanage after his parents were killed. 
one of the first items on the agenda was to get him a new set of clothes. So he was given a new, new pair of pants. He was given a new shirt, new pair of shoes. And then he was offered a new hat to replace the, the one that he had. It was kind of nasty. It was beat up. It was old looking. He didn't want the new hat. Finally, the sister was able to coax him into trying it on. And he liked it. And he did something weird. <laughs> he reached into his old hat and he pulled the lining out of it and he put it in his pocket. And when she asked him why he did that, he said, that lining is part of my mom's dress. It's all I've got of her. Whenever I think of it or touch it, it kind of brings her back. That's what communion does for us. When we physically handle the emblems that remind us of Jesus' body and blood, it's like it brings that back for us. All right, here's another important reason why we devote ourselves to the cross. It's because it's designed to be a time when I'll examine myself. Our time of communion is a time when we look at ourselves in an honest light. Paul would write this in verses 27 and 28. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to what? examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And I want you to notice those verses did not say an unworthy person. We're all unworthy. None of us deserve this. We all come to this time of communion as sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus didn't just die for the world. He died for me. He died for you. The Lord's Supper is a time of accountability to God. Sometimes when we examine ourselves at communion... We get to celebrate. God, this week, I, I, went in, I went the entire week without being sarcastic to my wife. Thank you for helping me grow in that. It, it makes me look more like you when I treat my wife with respect and love and honor. But my guess is more often than not, we examine ourselves and we conclude that in one area or another, we have fallen short and need God's forgiveness. And maybe you need to say something like, God, this week I lost my temper and when I did, I used language that does not reflect you well. I did not honor you with that. Or I lied to my parents. God, I know you want me to be a person of integrity. And, and I, there was a time this week I wasn't, and I need your forgiveness. Thank you for dying for my sins. I, I need that still today. I read of an elderly lady who was participating in a pre-Easter service in which the preacher suggested, today as you pass the bread and cup, would you whisper to the person next to you as you hand them to you, the body of Christ broken for you, the, the blood of Jesus shed for you. Well, by the time it got to her, she had forgotten what she was supposed to say. And so as she handed it to the person next to her, she said, take it, it's for sinners. Um, uh, which weren't the exact words. But it's the exact meaning, right? Paul does warn when we come to this time that if we do it flippantly, it can be spiritually damaging to us. It can, it can actually invite the judgment of God. So on your notes, I want to make sure you catch this three times when Paul suggests we don't take communion. Here's the first one. We'd suggest you don't take it if you have sin on your calendar. If you're not really ready to repent of your sins... Does that make sense? If you've padded the expense account that you're going to hand in tomorrow and you're still going to hand it in tomorrow, if you're living with someone you're not married to, if you have a closet full of X-rated videos or drugs and you have no intention of discarding those, may I suggest 
If you know when you're going to do this, listen, it's one thing to be forgiven of something you've done. It's a whole other thing to ask forgiveness for something you're about to do. Does that make sense? If you've got something you're planning and you know it stands between you and God and it is not what he wants for your life, this is a time of repentance and rededication. This isn't a time to pretend like everything is okay. Matter of fact, in the book of Hebrews, we read this, dear friends, if we deliberately continue on sinning after we've received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There's only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. If you have sin on the calendar, I would ask you to take a step back. Here's another reason. If there's someone in your life you haven't forgiven, if there's someone against whom you hold a grudge, Either begin the process of forgiveness or let it go by. Let the communion go by. And by that, I mean, maybe the first step is when you're getting ready to take communion, you say to God, I don't know how I'm going to walk through this because what they've done has hurt me so deeply. I'm not even sure I can forgive them, but I know you call me to that. And because you have forgiven me of so much, these emblems I hold in my hand remind me you've forgiven me of so much. God, help me to begin forgiving them. Listen, how, how can you ask God to forgive you of your huge debt? And you are unable to forgive someone else who sinned against you. Jesus said, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then go and offer your gift. Listen, to be meaningful, communion requires concentration, the, the price was so great for us that anything less than a proper attitude and a close examination of our lives is not acceptable. David would write, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. And so I'm going to pop back up a slide because I realize I skipped it. But if, if, you're, if you're getting ready to take communion and you're distracted or irritated, can I just step back? Step back away from it. God deserves our best concentration, our desire to be known by God when we come to this time. All right, I'm going to give you one more reason why it's so important to us. We devote ourselves to the cross because it's designed to be a time where we rededicate ourselves to him. It's verse 25. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. A covenant is an agreement. It is a contract. It's a promise between two people. When Peter would write a book later, a letter later in the New Testament, he said, in this water, he's talking about baptism. He says, this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Literally, these words, uh, the pledge of a clear conscience, literally those words mean that your baptism is a prayer to God, asking him for a pure heart. Your baptism, the act of baptism is a prayer you pray, asking God for a pure heart. And each time we take communion together, you are rededicating yourself to this prayer that you have made to him. That's what this time is. Yes, there is a story that is decades old, and I keep coming back to it. His name was Jason Tuscus. He was a 17-year-old honor student in Florida. 
He was close to his mom, his wheelchair-bound dad, and his younger brother. He was an excellent swimmer. He was a master scuba diver. It was a Tuesday morning. He left his house to go explore a spring in an underground cave near his home in West Central Florida. His plan was to be home in time for dinner. It was his mom's birthday. They were going to go out to eat. And as he began his dive, a horrible thing happened. He became lost in the cave. And in his panic, he apparently got wedged into a narrow passageway. And when he realized that he was trapped and he was not going to be able to escape, he shed his diver's mask and his metal air tank, and he unsheathed his diver's knife. And with his tank as a tablet, and with his knife as a pen, he wrote one last message to his family. He scratched on the metal, I love you, Mom, Dad. And then he added the word Christian. Sometime after that, he ran out of air and drowned. His body and the tank were retrieved and brought back to his parents. What do you think they did with that? Suppose they took that tank back to the diving equipment store to get their money back. Suppose they sold it in a yard sale so they could recoup some of the cost of it. Or do you suppose they kept it? And not because they were afraid they might not remember, but because they never wanted to lose that message that their son had left them. I said, Mom and Dad, I love you. And so when we come to this time of communion, it is a reminder that God has written us a note. And he didn't write it on a piece of paper. He didn't write it on metal. He wrote it on a cross. (laughs) And the note says, I love you. I want you to be with me forever. And our task is to hold on to the note. And so when we come together like this to a time of communion, what we are saying to each other, what we're saying back to God is we love you too. And we recommit ourselves to that prayer that we made, the promise we made in the baptistry that we want to have a heart like yours. So this morning as we take communion together, May we be devoted, not just doing something, but may we be devoted to what we do and what it means to us and to our Father. Let's go to him in prayer. God, thank you for the cross. Some of us wear it around our neck. Some of us have one sitting in our office or at home. Some of us have one in our locker at school. Sometimes people carry a cross in their pocket because it reminds us of how much you love us and the promise that we have made, the prayer we have offered back to you, asking you for a pure heart. So God, as we remember now the body of your son Jesus and his blood that was given for us on the cross, because we had a sin debt we could not pay that you stepped in and paid it for us because you love us that much. 
And God, may this very act that we do now show you how much we love you. Not just because we do it, but because of how we do it. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, who gave his life for ours. 